today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. I'd like to thank our episode sponsor, Takeda Oncology, for their support of the Myeloma Crowd Radio program. Today's the end of Myeloma Awareness Month, so I hope you've had a chance to share myeloma facts with your friends, family, and online community, and to join our efforts to spread myeloma awareness while helping you get fit through our Muscles for Myeloma campaign. The Myeloma Crowd will continue Muscles for Myeloma through April. So if you haven't joined yet, um, Muscles for Myeloma is a fitness campaign you can join to set and achieve fitness goals because fitness is critical for myeloma patients in order for them to get the best responses and treatments possible. At the same time, this campaign helps support the research being done by your myeloma specialist because we have teams for myeloma academic centers. So we encourage you to register, set a goal, a personal goal, um, share that goal with your family and friends, and invite them to donate to your page. Donations will go to myeloma research at the facility of the team that you join. And this is our effort to help national research and gives you a way to thank your myeloma team with something that's meaningful for them, research funding, to help them find a cure for you. It's also a great way to work on your beach body, and summer will be here before you know it. And we have great tools to help you track your fitness and your diet. Now, today's show is an exciting one about the use of intravenous vitamin C or ascorbic acid to kill myeloma cells. Dr. Guido Trico and his counterparts at the University of Iowa have been testing this in myeloma, and we are anxious to hear more. So welcome, Dr. Trico. Thank you. Uh, Let me give you a brief introduction. Dr. Guido Trico is director of the adult, I can never say this word, hematopoietic stem cell transplant and multiple myeloma. You can say it for me. It's it's good. It's good. (laughs) Multiple myeloma program. Adult uh, myeloma and stem cell transplantation program, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's a Gary D. Arthur professor of the adult bone marrow transplantation um, and professor of the department of and, and professor of the department of internal medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals, he has practiced myeloma at top facilities including Memorial Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, UAMS, the Greenbaum Cancer Center, the University of Utah, and the University of Iowa. Dr. Trico reviews publications including the American Journal of Hematology, Blood, Bone Marrow Transplantation, the British Journal of Hematology, and the Journal of Clinical Oncology, to name a few. Um, he's also on the editorial board of Bone Marrow Research and Leukemia, the Journal of Blood and Lymph, and the Journal of Cancer Therapy. Now, Dr. Trico um, has announced that he'll be retur- retiring in July. And um, I was hoping to get, gosh, sorry, <laughs> to, to get through this without choking up, but I don't think it's going to be possible. Dr. Trico is very special to me, not just as a renowned myeloma specialist and a member of our Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative Scientific Advisory Board, but he's also my doctor. He's one of the most caring doctors I've ever met, and he's helped me every step of the way in my myeloma journey and my efforts on the myeloma crowd to help my fellow patients. His core focus has always been his patients, and he has thousands that truly love him. His diligence in his work of more than 20-plus years has been to help patients obtain their best outcomes, You know, even when the protocols needed to get the deepest and long-lasting responses with the drugs available at the time were not popular. And now that science has caught up with some of 
his earlier work, most patients also now receive induction therapy, stem cell transplant, consolidation, and maintenance treatment, which is a relatively new development, but one he's been doing for many years because of his care. I personally enjoyed six years of complete remission, which has allowed me Okay, sorry, <laughs> to host this show and the My Little Macra program so I can help others. And I'm forever indebted to him. I know you'll be greatly missed by many patients. So my apologies for the emotion, but we are very grateful. So vitamin C is nothing to cry over, but um, maybe we should get started talking about that topic since that's what people are calling in to listen to. Um, when I was reading your paper, Dr. Trico, I saw three key issues that you kind of talked about with today's melphalan and myeloma treatment. Uh, maybe you want to talk about just the rationales behind why you decided to investigate um, intravenous vitamin C. Thank you very much for this uh, extremely kind introduction. Um, one of the goals has always been to try to get to treatments that are not so toxic and to treatments that are selective and kill the cancer cells while leaving the normal cells as much intact as possible. Unfortunately, most of our uh, medications we have for myeloma, although they work well, uh, they have considerable side effects, uh, whether it's the high-dose melphalan, which can cause sores in the mouth and can cause diarrhea, and severe cytopenias, uh, to the uh, bortezomib, which can cause neuropathy, to the imits, which can cause also neuropathy and also some degree of suppression of the bone marrow. Uh, there is never a free lunch with those drugs, and they have all their side effects. Um, so we have been trying to find ways uh, to use drugs that uh, are less toxic. And vitamin C has been used as an anti-cancer drug since the 1970s uh, by a work of Cameron and Pauling uh, showing that it had uh, anti-cancer effects. Unfortunately, in the 1990s, some of those experiments were repeated at the Mayo Clinic, but instead of by intravenous uh, uh, ascorbic acid or vitamin C, it was given by mouth. And when I say intravenous, I mean by vein. Hmm? Um, right. And uh, uh, it's clear that there is a major difference between giving it through the vein and by mouth. The amount of vitamin C you can absorb by mouth is very limited, and you can never reach levels that are that are necessary to kill cancer cells. And there has been more and more recent evidence that if you give high doses of vitamin C, and we're not talking about one gram a day, but we're talking about doses of 75 to 90 grams, uh, and you give it intravenously, that there is indeed potent anti-cancer effect. But so when the tests were well, when the tests were performed in the 1970s, how did they how did they give it and at what dose? Um, it was given intravenously, and the doses were variable, but were lower than what we are using now, but higher than what could be reached uh, by giving it 
uh, by mouth, even at high doses. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, but we now know that the doses that are necessary are in the 75 to 100 grams at, uh, at one time. Um, so, the role has been studied in multiple academic centers, including the University of Iowa, in which it's one of the major uh, uh, players in the field of vitamin C. However, the cancers that have been studied have all been solid tumor cancers, such as brain tumors and pancreatic cancer, and ovarian cancer, and breast cancer, and prostate cancer. But it has not been studied in uh, liquid tumors, such as uh, leukemia and myeloma. We also have started to understand better how vitamin C works, although we still there are still some uh, parts that we still don't know well. And we know that in the presence of certain metals, such as iron, I-R-O-N, that high-dose vitamin C leads to the formation of what we call reactive oxygen species, or ROS, which basically cause oxidation and damage to the DNA and let into the cells die, and make the cells die. Uh, our studies have shown that uh, when you look at myeloma cells and cells in smoldering myeloma, that the levels of iron in the cells is much higher than in normal cells. But in patients with MGUS, the monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, the iron levels were not very high. And we have tried to find out why the iron levels are so much higher in uh, cancer cells than in normal cells, and it's basically because of two mechanisms. You have to imagine a cancer cell, and on the left you have a pump that pumps iron in, and on the right you have a pump that uh, pumps iron out. And the pump that uh, uh, pumps iron in is called transferrin, and the one that pumps iron out is ferroportin. And we know that in cancer cells, transferrin is much higher than in normal cells, so it pumps more iron in. And also, at the same time, the ferroportin, which pumps iron out, is much lower in cancer cells. So you have more pumping okay. in, less pumping out. You increase the concentration of iron in your cancer cells. In normal cells, there is an equilibrium where you have a certain amount that is pumped in and a certain amount that's pumped out, but you never get very high concentrations of iron. If you don't have high, high levels of uh, iron in your cells, the vitamin C will not do any damage. So this is a way where we can now do something that's quite selective, where the more malignant the cells are, the more iron they have, and the more they are sensitive to vitamin C, and the lower the vitamin C levels are in the cells, the less sensitive they are. Uh, so the normal cells are almost not, uh, you almost see any effect, while in the cancer cells, the more iron they have, the more they are going to be affected by vitamin C. And when you look at uh, patients with myeloma in the beginning and at relapse or uh, patients with little disease and more aggressive disease, in relapse patients and more aggressive disease, those patients have myeloma cells with much more iron than the patients with more benign types of myeloma. So this is a type okay. of treatment that will be especially effective in not 
necessarily up front, but certainly in relapsed patients. Um, so we have done a, a series of studies in myeloma to evaluate the role of vitamin C. And these studies were basically done by Frank Shan, who is our uh, uh, major researcher, and his group, especially Ivana Fresh. And so uh, although I report those studies to you, the heavy lifting was done by other people, uh, by our researchers here in, in the, at the University of Iowa. So yeah, they're the a great team. Yes. <laughs> and the first uh, set of studies was uh, what we call in vitro studies or, tests in, in a te or uh, studies in a test tube. And the first thing we did is we took myeloma bone marrow. Patients with myeloma, we took their bone marrow, and we separated this in two fractions, their myeloma cells and their non-myeloma cells, the normal bone marrow. And the myeloma cells died in the presence of the high-dose vitamin C, while the normal cells were totally not affected by it. And the same effect was seen in smoldering myeloma, but not in uh, monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, which we knew had lower uh, concentrations of iron in the cells. So the next, next question we had is, is this indeed the killing? Is the killing due to oxidative damage to the oxidation of the DNA? And to do that, we incubated myeloma cells with agents that protect against oxidative stress, such as N-acetyl-NAC uh, uh, and such as catalase. And those prevent basically the, uh, the reactive oxygen species to uh, uh, be formed and protect uh, against the damage done. So and we, what we saw is that uh, when we incubate the cells with those agents that prevent uh, oxidative stress, that we didn't see vitamin C killing myeloma cells. The second thing we wanted to see is, is iron indeed critical to kill those myeloma cells? And one of the ways we could do that is by incubating the myeloma cell with desferoxamine. And desferoxamine is an agent that chelates that binds iron and makes it inactive. So if you do that, then you don't see any more killing of myeloma cells, which already gave us a good clue that iron was indeed critical. The other thing we did is we increased the gene for ferroportin. And you remember ferroportin is the, the gene that is the protein that pumps out uh, the iron. So if we increase the gene, then we will see much more protein uh, ferroportin protein and much more pumping out of iron. And again, when we did that, we saw much less killing of myeloma cells. However, if we increased iron in the medium uh, where we incubated the cells with, then there was increased iron in the myeloma cells, and that increased iron resulted in increased killing of myeloma cells, making it very clear that iron was a critical player in the toxicity of uh, vitamin C. And then a wow. second set of uh, experiments was done in uh, mice, which we call in vivo experiments, to see whether not only this would work in a test tube, but also in in, uh, in, in, in vivo, in uh, myeloma, uh, in mice that had uh, active myeloma. And we used uh, com a severe combined immunodeficiency mice uh, and we also made the myeloma cells 
visible by by having the myeloma cells express luciferase so that you can uh, monitor the tumor progression by imaging. And we incubated the myeloma cells with carfilzomib, with melphalan, with velcate, and with uh, high-dose vitamin C. And the dose of vitamin C was 4 milligrams per kilogram, which was the dose that can be reached easily in patients when you give 75 to 90 grams of uh, vitamin C. And when we did those studies, we saw that melphalan showed the best killing. As we all know, melphalan is still the best drug if it's given in high doses uh, for myeloma. But we also saw that if you uh, give vitamin C only and you compare that to carfilzomib, that carfilzomib did not kill more cells than the, than the vitamin C. Vitamin C was equally Crazy. effective. That is crazy. (laughs) And then uh, we also tried Velcate, but it became very clear, and we also could confirm that that vitamin C basically inactivates uh, Velcate and that you cannot combine those two together. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because, well, we'll we'll come back to that. So keep going because that's an important point I think patients need to understand. Yeah. Yeah. so most patients will already know that uh, uh, when you uh, take Velcate that you should not take vitamin C and that you also should not take green tea at the same time. Um, then we went to combinations of uh, treatment. We combined carfilzomib with high-dose vitamin C and we combined melphalan with high-dose vitamin C. But the melphalan we did at the dose that we typically would give, 5 milligrams per kilogram, but also at 3 milligrams and 1 milligram per kilogram. And to our surprise, we saw that uh, the effect that the the mice survived equally well with the lowest dose of melphalan if it was combined with uh, 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 vitamin C than with the highest dose. So we were now able to uh, reduce the dose of melphalan to one-fifth, and even with one-fifth of the dose, and adding vitamin C to it, we had the same killing as with uh, melphalan given by itself at the highest dose. But whatever dose of melphalan we used and we added vitamin C, we always saw better effects when we added vitamin C. We saw the mice surviving much longer when you added vitamin C, whether it was at the lowest dose or the middle dose or the highest dose. But again, at the lowest dose, with vitamin C, we saw the mice surviving equally well as with the high dose of melphalan alone. And then when you combine it with carfilzomib and vitamin C, what did you find? If we combined carfilzomib and vitamin C, we basically did not see any more effect than with carfilzomib alone or with uh, vitamin C alone. So we did not see any uh, additive effect or synergistic effect when we added those two together. So it worked clearly best with melphalan alone. That made us think of, uh sorry, how should we go from here? And there are two things that, uh, well, there are, first of all, what we still need to do is to try to find out how the mice become resistant to the vitamin C because ultimately all the mice relapse, they relapse later, but how do they become resistant to it? 
and how can we prevent the mice from becoming resistant to it? What do we need to add to it? But in mm -hmm. terms of clinical studies, uh, there are two ways we would like to go. And one way is to use it in patients who have smoldering myeloma and use it as a single agent to see whether we really see effect when we use it as single agent alone. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that we would like to do is patients who are not candidates for transplantation, the, who cannot tolerate the full dose of melphalan, to see whether we can give those patients a fourth or a fifth of the dose of melphalan, add high-dose vitamin C to it, and see whether they do equally well than patients who have melphalan alone at the full dose. Right. Okay? So this would make the melphalan available to many more patients than at this point in time. Because, as you can imagine, when you give the lower doses of melphalan, those mice have much less toxicity than the, patient, than the mice that got the full dose of melphalan, while it was equally effective. And that's what we also would expect in patients, that if we do this in uh, patients, that they will have much less side effects and that they will be able to tolerate those relatively low doses of melphalan with vitamin C much better while they could not tolerate uh, the high-dose melphalan by itself. So can I ask you a question about that? So sometimes I know melphalan can be given not in the in the transplant setting. So if you lower the dose of melphalan and you do the vitamin C with it, is that sufficient to do a full stem cell transplant? Like does it kill enough for you to kind of reset the immune system like the stem cell transplant is supposed to do, or how does that work? That, based on the mice data, that's what you would expect. But hmm. as you know, not everything that you see in mice translates directly into humans, and we need to do the, the clinical studies to show that you can indeed lower the dose uh, of uh, melphalan uh, by 80%, and if you combine it with vitamin C, you're still going to see the same effect as if you would give full dose melphalan alone. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And before when I was, sorry, I interrupted you before, but um, let's just go over that again because you did explain how bortezomib and, you know, is not to be used, but... I just want to make sure, because when I posted this show, um, I saw a lot of people kind of say, well, my doctor told me not to take vitamin C, so why am I, you know, why is this going to kill my lemon cells, or someone's posting about how lemons cure cancer and things like that. So I just want to be very clear about if your doctor has told you um, not to take vitamin C, the reason would be? The reason would be that the vitamin C uh, is going to inactivate the falcate and make it not work to some degree. Uh, it all depends upon the dose of vitamin C you give and how much is absorbed uh, of the vitamin C, but you will lose a certain amount of activity by taking vitamin C at the same time as you take your falcate. Okay, and then the um, when because I've been on vitamin C and been told not to take vitamin C, and when you go back on vitamin C, it's mostly for um, to boost your immune system while you're in a remission-type status. Is that correct? Um, that's one of the reasons. Uh, vitamin C is an antioxidant uh, agent, and uh, so it it uh, it helps people. 
whether it's uh, at low doses has any major effect on the immune system or not, that's still all debatable. Okay. But in general, uh, it's good to take some additional vitamins. Right. Okay. And and I know earlier you explained um, the presence of iron. So when you were doing this experiment, you used um, patients with MGUS, patients with smoldering myeloma, and patients with active myeloma. And you were saying that you didn't see the impact on the MGUS as you did on the active myeloma, and they had less iron than they did. What about on smoldering myeloma patients? I guess that depends if they're high-risk smoldering or does it I, – I, I wonder. The 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 problem is that we have relatively limited numbers of MCOS and smoldering myeloma patients that we studied. But the smoldering myelomas, in terms of how much iron they had in their cells, was relatively similar to myeloma, while it was much, much lower in MCOS patients. Mm-hmm. So and I know you're trying, you said you uh-huh. would expect right. that they would do relatively well with vitamin C alone. And to just as a proof of principle to give those patients vitamin C uh, for a while and see whether we can really kill their uh, uh, smoldering myeloma cells, I think would be important for us to show that. Well, it would be a pretty benign clinical trial, right? I mean, you're being infused with vitamin C. Yeah. Are there any any risks of doing IV vitamin C that you're aware of? There are risks. Uh, the main risk is when, when your kidney function is not good. If your creatinine is more than two, uh, you might have uh, kidney problems with the vitamin C. So those patients are typically excluded. Uh, patients who are on warfarin also are typically excluded or they have to go to different uh, anticoagulation uh, treatments. Okay. And the other thing that vitamin C interferes with, if you... If you're diabetic and you test your glucose by uh, a glucometer, uh, that that is clearly influenced by the vitamin C. It gives you false readings. So if you take it in the blood, there's no problem, but not on, on the finger. Oh, interesting. So you would have to get a, a lab pulled, yes. a blood sample taken. Yeah, because uh, your, vitamin, your glucose levels are going to be totally... Uh, unreliable for about six hours after you start the vitamin C. Okay. And when you when the historical research was done in the 1970s, and I know you said the oral was done in the 1990s, um, would it, was it repeated or was it just given once? Like let's say you're going through stem cell transplant. Usually you get melphalan once, you know, and you don't get it repeated. You just get it once and you get your stem cells back. So I, I guess this, this would be part of future work to study, but what would be your guess or your hypothesis about um, uh, yeah. the in use solid, of vitamin C? Yeah, in solid tumors, they usually give it twice a week for three weeks, so a total of six doses. And that's where they had the most success, and I think that we should probably stick to that. That doesn't mean that every time they have to have melphalan, but the vitamin C uh, would still help in uh, killing cells that were damaged initially by the by the high-dose melphalan. Mm-hmm. And I think what you said was really important, that you gave it, you tried it at three different doses, and yeah. that, that, you know, it was, 
yeah, that was really important. Um, and that no survival differences were in your paper. It says no no survival differences were observed between low and high doses of methylene when combined. So, um, how would you guess? Uh, and would you be interested in testing how this might work in conjunction with other types of myeloma treatment like dexamethasone or the IMIDs or the monoclonal antibodies and those types of drugs? Because you've, well, you've tested one IMID, right, the carfilzomib, and you did the pro-1 proteasome inhibitor, the Velcade. We didn't test the IMIDs. And the reason why we didn't test IMIDs is because we Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, carfilzomib, sorry. yeah, yeah. In an uh, immunodeficient mouse, and as you know, IMIDs are immunomodulatory drugs, and we didn't know how much of the activity of the drug we would lose if patients have no immune system. Oh, I see. So have, no immune, have, have no immune system that can work. And the same thing for the monoclonal antibodies. You need to have cells that are eating up the uh, myeloma cells that are covered with uh, this monoclonal antibody, and it's the the immunodeficient mice that we used are not optimal for this type of work. Mm-hmm. And do they see the same thing in other blood cancers where there are high levels of iron on top of these cells like leukemia and lymphoma? Yes, yes. Uh, as we all know, if you look at ferritin levels, uh, they are very high in, in most malignancies, and the more aggressive the malignancy is, the more the higher the ferritin levels are. Uh, so there is uh, cells need some degree of iron to for them to grow and proliferate, and so and the cancer cells are extremely worried that they don't have enough iron in their system and that it will limit their growth. That's why they take excess amounts of iron up while they prevent the iron from being pumped out of the cell. So they hang on to it. Yes. And and can you help differentiate also, because you mentioned this earlier, which is um, true, that it's only impacting the cancerous cells versus regular healthy cells, and this why that's important. Well, it, an ideal drug for for cancer is a drug that only kills the cells that you want to kill, the cancer cells, while has no side effects uh, to the normal cells. It doesn't cause the, uh, the bone marrow cells to decrease. It doesn't cause diarrhea. It doesn't cause nausea, vomiting, because it has no effect on those cells. And vitamin C seems to be a drug that has that major difference between normal cells, which have very low levels of iron and therefore are not going to be damaged by the vitamin C, and cancer cells, which happen to have a, a large amount of iron in, their, uh, in the cells and therefore are going to be much more damaged by the vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And then the um, are there any other cells in the body that have higher iron uptake in, in general? Uh, or just general, normal uh, cells uh, have a normal level? There are, no, there are some uh, congenital diseases, which we call hemochromatosis, where the cells pick up much more iron than they should, and that causes ultimately liver and pancreas damage because of all the iron that's accumulated in the cells. Well, maybe you get some side benefit <laughs> by, 
<laughs> by giving this type of treatment. Maybe it could uh, kill not only cancer cells, but other help of other diseases before, too. It could be, yes. Yeah. So yeah, any, possibly. any type of cell that has a high amount of iron, in theory, should be selectively killed, while the normal cells with low amounts of iron should should have no side effects. Mm-hmm. So um, in the future, what would I know you mentioned this a little bit, what you'd like to do, but if you could map out a, a strategy for future investigations, what would that strategy look like? Uh, the, first of all, in, uh, the first thing I would like to do is see if we give vitamin C alone in smoldering myeloma, is it going to work? Is it going to kill the smoldering myeloma cells? And if it is, how can we combine it with another drug that we typically don't use in myeloma for the myeloma treatment and that we can add to the vitamin C so that in case those patients ultimately develop myeloma that we already have not lost quite a bit of drugs that that we need later on. So that would be my Um, ideal combination. And whether that's uh, immune-related, like monoclonal antibodies, or the PDE1 inhibitors, those are all things that we are looking at at this point in time. Are there other drugs that you um, think, when when you're thinking about combining it with another drug that it's not used in myeloma therapy, beyond the monoclonal antibodies or PD-1, like other drugs and other diseases? Or are you kind of thinking just along those lines, like the immunology kind of drugs? That's what I would like to do at this point in time. Since uh, mm-hmm. the general belief is that why do p- patients develop uh, myeloma out of uh, smoldering myeloma or MGUS is because their immune system becomes uh, affected and the immune system is not as effective as it should be and that's why uh, uh, they develop myeloma because the immune system that could control the disease before and make sure that for every cell that was produced that another cell was killed, uh, that mechanism uh, dies off and uh, now the cells can proliferate and there is, uh, there is much more growth than this killing of uh, myeloma cells, and that's how the disease goes to myeloma. Okay, so you'd first like to test it in smoldering myeloma, and then what would be your next, the next, your next step? In, in, especially in patients over the age of 65 the, uh, who are not uh, candidates for full-dose uh, melphalan to see whether we can have good survivals by combining a quarter or a fifth of the dose of melphalan with the high-dose vitamin C. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and we should be able to have, based on the mice data, should have the same outcomes as if we would have given full-dose melphalan. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at something like this that's um, not a drug company drug, it's vitamin C and, you know, um, and think about costs to create a clinical trial for smoldering myeloma patients or a clinical trial for these over 65 patients who aren't transplant eligible with full doses anyway. Um, what? How do you structure that to create a clinical trial over that? And, and is it less expensive than kind of a standard myeloma clinical trial? Well, that all depends, as you know, how much vitamin C will be used. You know, if it's going to be used in much larger scales, 
uh, there will be more companies making vitamin C and there will be competition and the, and the price will go down. Uh, if there's not a lot of vitamin C used in high doses, then it's going to remain a relatively expensive drug. And we can only do those studies if there is some support by another mechanism like the NIH or uh, uh, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society or uh, any other uh, uh, myeloma support group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating because you think about vitamin C as being this ubiquitous kind of vitamin that's everywhere. So you don't Low really dose. think about it as as having cost, like high cost, yeah. potentially. It, yeah, if, if you it, give it orally, it's cheap, but we know that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So tell me about dosing again, because you mentioned the dose, but I didn't write it down. And... The, do, the dose is somewhere between 75 and 90 grams with each administration. And while if you and I take vitamin C, we typically take one gram of vitamin C. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's almost 100 times. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, and if you give uh, the same amount by pills, uh, you get about 40 times more uh, higher levels if you give it intravenously than by pills, the same amount. Mm-hmm. So that's why the oral will not work. You have to give it intravenously. And... Um, when you talk about the the mice relapsing, I wonder if, you know, some of the strategies in myeloma are get rid of the bulk of the disease and then give something else like a vaccine or another um, a T-cell therapy or something like that that can boost the immune system back up now that the disease has kind of been cleared out and freed up. Um and then there are others that are just, you know, actual myeloma killing, get to the root of the problem kind of kind of uh, strategies. So how how would you see this working? I know you're working on finding out why why it came back and why why are the iron levels going back up? Maybe. Yeah. Um, ideally, as you know, when you have gone through transplantation you would like to have treatments that are not going to affect you a lot and that you can go back to normal life as quickly as possible. Right. And right. so that is what we are trying to do is instead of giving the two years or three years of uh, Velcate with an emit or carfilzomib with an emit and dexamethasone, that we can go to something that selectively kills your cancer cells, but doesn't impact your quality of life. Right. Well, that would be a game changer, complete yeah. game changer, because post-transplant, it takes a long time for you to feel like normal again. And then, yeah. you know, I would much rather go on a vitamin C maintenance regimen, <laughs> if that's possible, than, than something else yeah. that's, you know, going to cause other worse side effects yeah. that will inhibit and, quality of life. So. And, and again, the thing that we always have to remember and that we have clearly seen with the image is that all those other drugs that have effects on other cells can cause problems in the long run. Like if you give Revlimid for too long, you can you increase your risk of leukemia and secondary tumors. Yeah. And so if you have drugs that are only working on the cancer cells and leave the normal cells intact, you don't have those risks. 
Right. And you mentioned some other, um, you know, possible side effects, but not they didn't seem very uh, severe with vitamin C. Have there been other studies that have been done that have given high doses of vitamin C over longer periods of time? So you could see, so you already have that data about impact or potential side effects, if any, of vitamin C? If you are talking about as it's been given for more than three or six months, I don't think that that has been the case. All the studies that I've seen, they have been relatively limited in their scope. It, it was given for three cycles, and then people went on to the classical treatments. So you don't know of any diseases right now that use mega doses of, vi- of intravenous vitamin C to treat any for any particular period, disease? We know that by itself it's not going to be sufficient, that we have to give this in combination. And in myeloma, we know that the best combination is with melphalan. But in other mm-hmm. diseases, that's still being, it's being tried with uh, cisplatin, with uh, uh, Paxil, with, with all those, those other drugs that are typically used in solid tumors to see which mm-hmm. one of those is the best combination. Mm-hmm. And the the reason for it being maybe more effective in blood cancers versus solid tumors, I think you kind of briefly mentioned it before, but do you want to go you into could, more detail about why it might be an attractive target? Yeah, because in solid tumor in solid tumors you have this mass of cancer cells, and it's very difficult for any any type of product to basically penetrate into the middle of that solid yeah. tumor. Yeah. Eh? It, it will do the, the around uh, the cells that are going to be the most affected are the cells at at the out layer, the, the cells that are closest to the blood vessels. But in, in liquid tumor cells, all the cells are basically equally exposed to the blood vessels and to the blood. And so it's uh, it should work better if you do it mm-hmm. in liquid. Yeah, I would think so because it's it's it can reach it like you like you're saying. But easier to reach the the target cells than in solid tumors. Mhm. Well, in clinical trials, are as in terms of a next step for a smoldering myeloma or an over 65 and non-transplant eligible kind of clinical trial, is are you and the research team kind of working on constructing a follow-on trial? And if so, how how long does that typically take? Well, we are trying now to develop protocols that we can uh, get through the uh, the FDA and can mm-hmm. get uh, um, our uh, IRBs or institutional review boards uh, for mm-hmm. approval. But as you know, if you have to have something approved by the FDA, it takes its sweet time and. I think six right. to twelve <laughs> probably what we will need. Mhm. Well, I think it's very exciting work, and I think it's um, just I I know that you and the and um, Dr. Zahn and the team have worked together for a long time, also, and yeah. been really instrumental in helping understand the genetics of myeloma, and so you really understand the deep the deep dive into the research and um, what would work and what wouldn't. So. This kind of option would be terrific for patients, just terrific. So it's very exciting. 
Well, if it would work as well in humans as it is in mice, it would be very exciting. Yeah. Were the 1970s studies done in humans, or were they mouse models also? No, no, they were done in humans. Okay. And what were they done for? I'm curious. They're all solid tumors, only solid tumors. Uh, again, breast cancer and uh, prostate cancer and uh, brain cancer and all those type of things. Hmm. It's so fascinating. Well, we're so happy you're looking at it. Um, I'm going to open it up for caller questions, and then I may have some other follow-up questions after um, some of our callers are finished. Um, but if you'd like to ask Dr. Trico a question, you can call 347 Six three seven two six three one, and press one on your keypad, and um, I'll open it up for our first caller at nine eight three six seven five seven. Good afternoon, Dr. Trico. My name is Dana Holmes, and I'm a smoldering patient. So I have been finding this discussion this afternoon just fascinating. Um, before I ask my question, I really just want to express how grateful I, as a smoldering patient, excuse me, Am, for your dedication and commitment to not only your myeloma patients, but to the multiple myeloma patient community. And I personally wish you only the very, very best and am just always so grateful that um, specialists such as yourself take the time out to educate us and and inform us and give us hope. So thank you. Um, Twenty minutes into the discussion, um, I was so excited when you mentioned that this was something that could potentially be used in a smoldering uh, clinical trial. It just seems to be a dream come true for for smolderers to consider something that is um, so much less toxic approach than um, what we actually have on the table right now. And I'm wondering, would, would, would this be something that would be for all subtypes of um, smoldering myeloma or multiple myeloma? In other words, the, you know, all of the different cytogenetic abnormalities, or is it more or less for the lower risk type um, profile? Um, our work seems to indicate that the more aggressive the disease is and the more high risk the disease is, the more the cells accumulate iron, and the more iron they accumulate, the more they should respond to the high-dose vitamin C. So this this is not like only for the relatively benign types, but it's especially for the more high-risk patients with smoldering myeloma, where I would think it would work the best. Ah, interesting. And it, obviously for the smoldering myeloma trial, it would be as a single agent. How do yes. you see such a, a, a trial design? Would it be a single dose? Would it be multiple doses? Would it need to be – I know that these are probably all questions that you have to answer, but would you see it that we would need it as a long-term use in order – if, especially if someone responds to it, in order to continue that response? Um, I would think that we should try with uh, – uh, giving six doses twice a week, so for about three weeks, and then see what response is. In patients who respond, then we need to come up with some type of maintenance dose uh, that is doable for the patients, that is effective enough to keep the disease under control. Uh, so that, those are things that we need to find out. But unless you do the clinical trials, it's very difficult to find out. And again, if we do a clinical trial, 
we will include all the smoking myelomas and not just say, well, we should only take the high risk. We uh-huh. want to in all of those patients, is there effect of the of uh, the vitamin C by itself? And if you give them combinations, then people will always say, but how do you know what the effect was of the vitamin C and the effect of the other drug? Uh-huh. If you only give vitamin C, then you know if you see effect, it must be the vitamin C. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, what an interesting approach. Would this be a trial, uh, a single trial center at the University of Iowa, or do you see this as a multi-center trial? I would like to have this done as a multi-center trial so that we can move on quickly. Uh-huh. All of us don't have that many uh, smoldering myelomas, and uh, I would like to, as quickly as possible, have uh, evidence in, in about 30 patients whether this is working or not. Uh-huh. It's just fascinating, Dr. Trico, to, to think that um, after three weeks' time that you'd be able to establish whether there would be a response or not. Um, how, how would you monitor a patient? Are you looking just at simply uh, blood biomarkers, serum biomarkers, or are you looking also at bone marrow biopsies? I think if you want to have a complete picture of how well patients are responding, then you need to look at the blood you need to look at the bone marrow, and you need to look at imaging. Imaging also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And combine those three, then you have a pretty good idea whether you really had a clinical response. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Well, this just, honestly, I have nightmares about my smoldering myeloma, <laughs> and I think that this has just removed some of those nightmares, just the thought of it and the hope that it holds. So I uh, thank you, and I and I wish you the very, very best of luck for it, and I'm hoping that it comes to a center near me because I will be at that front door and um, lending my support to something like that for sure. Thank you again, sir. And Jenny, thank you so much for taking my calls. No, thanks, Dana. Okay, our next caller is 732-0188. Go ahead with your question. Hello, go ahead with your question. Hello. Hi, we can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, yes. Okay, I didn't realize it was uh, me. Sir, uh, thank you very much for your uh, uh, your efforts um, in this regard. Um, I uh, am currently in, in remission after having a stem cell transplant last uh, June, and because of pretty severe neuropathy in my feet, uh, I uh, am taking just a, a Velcade, uh, maintenance um, uh, therapy. I, I take a somewhat reduced dose of Velcade once a month, and I had never heard an, an association between Velcade and, and vitamin C. And I drink about eight ounces of orange juice uh, each morning. Is that uh, um, is that something I should discontinue? Well, you need to discontinue that on the days that you get your Velcade. The other days is fine. Okay. So okay. So it's only the day of the Velcade. Yes. Okay. Okay. Sir, thank you very much uh, for uh, again for your efforts and taking my question. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Trico, I had a follow-up question from um, one of the questions that Dana asked, and it has to do with the well, how you say that the iron levels are higher in the higher risk um, gene profiles, and I mean you've attended and spoken at our Myeloma Crowd Roundtables before where we talk a lot about high-risk disease. And there's a chart that you and others have shown that 
that shows kind of the progression of someone's myeloma and how it morphs and picks up changes over time. So when you say it's more effective for the higher risk, does that mean because maybe they've been under treatment for a longer period of time and these cells are, you know, holding on to iron and pumping more in and pumping less out over time? Or do you think that a particular genetic mutation, like let's say a deletion 17 or something like that, regardless of the the length of time someone's been treated, if those have higher iron levels? I, I guess my question is if you've ever assessed just um, like a maybe a newly diagnosed patient with, with some of those things and looked at their iron levels. Well, Does that make that, sense? Does my question yes, make sense? That's, part, that's going to be part of the study that we are going to do with mm-hmm. uh, when we do this uh, smoldering myeloma study and when we do the myeloma study to see whether there are differences in the different genetic groups. Uh, but, uh, again, based on what we have with limited samples of uh, myeloma patients and the many, many different forms of myeloma that are existing, you need to have a much larger sample to to say anything meaningful uh, about that. But in theory, again, uh, the more aggressive the disease is, the more they are going to upregulate the, the pump that pumps in iron and the more that they are going to mm-hmm. downregulate the pump that pumps out iron and the more they are going to hold on to the iron and the more iron there is in the cells, the better the vitamin C should work. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I wonder if that will give you any indication also as to why more, I mean, you know, why the iron is getting pumped in and, and less unless it's getting pumped out, if it'll help indicate how to just shut that down, you know, over, find something else that'll kind of put those, make, make, reset those, I guess, to normal levels, because that would be fantastic. Yeah, but I, I, well, we can do this artificially in cell lines, and that's what we did. We can, the pump that pumps out iron, we can make sure that it pumps much harder and has much more of that protein in. And if we yeah, do that, the levels of iron decrease in the myeloma cells, and uh, you see less killing of uh, uh, myeloma cells with the vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, if you bind iron uh, with desferoxamine, you see the same thing. While if you incubate cells uh, with iron and they take more iron up and the levels are increasing in the cells, you see more killing. So there is it's mm-hmm. clearly related to the level of iron in the cells. Uh, but mm-hmm. what level of iron you need to have to see killing, and below what level you will not see any killing, those are all things that we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very important discovery, and I'm just really thrilled that you're, you've joined us today to describe how it works and to clarify things for patients and to give us something new and exciting to look at, um, you know, look ahead for. So this is this is terrific, and we're really, really grateful that you joined us today. Um, yes, I, you know, I'm, I don't know how retirement works, but I don't know if you can continue to be involved in research like this. Um, but um, if not, you're going to be incredibly missed. <laughs> so we want to see these as patients. We want to see these keep going. Yeah, but I will always be involved to some degree more as a consultant than really as a as an active member. But I will always be involved to some degree 
because I think I have some experience that can be helpful. Well, in my opinion, you're one of the great examples of the um, the value of seeing a myeloma specialist, and I say this almost on every show, I feel like. But um, going to someone like you who has been treating myeloma for 20-plus years uh, versus going to a local oncologist, you can just see the depth of experience um, in every aspect of the treatment. And on the research side, you've you've seen some of everything. So you know how these things interact and relate with one another and can, you know, sometimes serendipity comes from looking at some work that's been done 20 years ago that you remember or 30 or, you know, from the 70s. So to me, this is just a great example of that. Yeah, and being an institution that had interest in vitamin C. It's, yeah, Yeah. many times in life, sometimes those things happen by accident and not really planned. Mm-hmm. And how? Tell tell us a little more about the history of vitamin C research at the University of Iowa, because that sounds like it's an important piece. Yes, uh, the, our uh, radiation therapy group uh, they have major interest in in vitamin C, and initially we didn't know that. But after a while, when working with people here, we saw that. That was potentially interesting, and uh, we went to their seminars, and we heard what they were doing, and we th- we thought, well, we need to try this out in liquid cancer. So you would think that this is going to work better in liquid cancers than in solid tumor cancers, and that's how uh, we started to do those things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just so fascinating. So thank you for your incredible work. Thank you for being such a wonderful doctor for both me and everyone else. And I don't want to cry again, (laughs) so I'm going to try not to. But um, I just want to thank you for your decades of service to the myeloma patient community. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to our listeners for listening to Myeloma Crowd Radio. And we invite you to listen to our next episode to learn more about the latest in myeloma research and what it means for you. 